Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Back in 2006, when Julie and I moved back to Dallas-Fort Worth to start our journey toward church planning, could you black out the screen, Sarah? I don't have any slides. So I see myself in it. Thank you. Um, We moved back to Dallas to start our journey toward church planning. And we did this apprenticeship thing with one of our supporting churches and a couple of church plants in the area. And one of my pieces of preparation in that apprenticeship time before church planning was to go to this retreat hosted by a church in this area. And it was called Preparing for Battle. And the focus of the retreat, the idea of the retreat is basically like to prepare for battle. You come into this safe space and you imagine all of the ways that you wrestle with brokenness uh, and you kind of deal with those things. It's a, uh, like a spiritual cleansing, you know, practicing confession and repentance. All of those are really good things. But it was like immersed in this framework of spiritual warfare. Which was all well and good, except for the parts where, like, the main presenter would start to talk about, like, hey, if you, if you struggle with depression, that means not only do you have depression in yourself, but there's a spirit of depression that's, like, over you, that's oppressing you. Or if you have anxiety, it's not just the anxiety you have in yourself, there's a spirit of anxiety that is, like, oppressing you and over you. Um, you know, on down the list. And they talked about the occult. They talked about unforgiveness. Any area that you find yourself struggling, there's like this attending demon that's oppressing you to make you feel and experience the things you're feeling. And I remember feeling kind of weirded out by that. Honestly, like a little paranoid and afraid. Like, really? Like, my brokenness was hard enough and now you're telling me there's a demon up there somewhere. Like, specially assigned to my area of brokenness to like keep me under. So there's paranoia and fear. And as I, thought to, as I started to think about it, too, there's, there's at least the possibility of a little bit of blame shifting that can happen if there's such a strong role for these demonic spirits who are kind of oppressing me. Um, it, namely, it's the old, the devil made me do it kind of thing. Oh, well, I mean, I've got an evil spirit, you know, that's on my back. Uh, I'm doing the best I can. Give me a break, you know. So it removes some responsibility, possibly, or culpability. I don't know. I, I didn't grow up with spiritual warfare kind of stuff. And so, you know, it was, it was weird for me. I've, I've always struggled, not, not because I don't believe that there are not spiritual forces at work. I mean, if you believe in God and the Holy Spirit, it's not a leap to say, well, there are opposing spirits at work in the heavenly places, too. It's not that. It's just I've always struggled to find a way to kind of talk about it and to live it that wasn't like weird or creepy or controlling or fear-based or or blame-shifting, right? That's some of my baggage, I guess, that I bring to this conversation about spiritual warfare in the text that we're talking about today. Maybe you have a different experience. I would like to hear about it. Um, What are your experiences or your perceptions 
of this idea or concept of spiritual warfare? Honestly, I was caught up in the 80s in the old Frank Peretti. Yeah. 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 And I called him and I said, one guy I hadn't seen in a long time, and I said, hey, he's back. And I said, hey, what are you doing? He says, oh, I got out of here. And he said, God's caught up with the church. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. I said, they convinced me I was possessed by a demon. He said, you know, we drug abusers, we love that. We love that topic. Because, in my thought, it's like I had no responsibility to do this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that sort of thing, just, is Satan out there? Is, is, is this demonic force out there? I, I assume so. I think it may be more systems than just that, but mm. it, it does. It, it removes me from any kind of responsibility. And it also. What's the word I'm looking for? It, it, just, it just removes me. And yet it also oppresses me at the same time mm. as a homeless in that kind of situation. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's not the same kind of helplessness that I need mean God's grace. It's a helplessness that makes me always the Jews say, look over my shoulder and paranoia, yeah. rather than trusting that, you know what, it ain't about that. It's like the, the weaponry that's, that Paul talks about. It's not that it's the Bible or the word about a central sword. It's like, so you just... You prepare with the right kind of equipment. That's all he's saying. Yeah. And you go preach my sermon for me, Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's right. Of course. Once a preacher, always a preacher. Yeah. We don't use metaphors crazy. Yeah. And we yep. make him say more than they actually say. Yeah. And I think Absolutely. Right. Yeah. 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 And I asked her, I said, do you know where you're weak? And she said, what do you mean? I said, I really didn't think of a lot about that. Is where can Satan attack me? Do I know where I'm weak? So that when I'm there, then I know that it could, where it could be possible. Hmm. And so we discussed that and, and shared that with each other. And so, but along with that, I've always stood up in that scripture, and I don't know where it's found, that's greater to see that is in the field. Mm-hmm. That's a good so one. I've kind of stood there with that. Yeah. And so if God is greater than the one who's in the world, namely Satan or the powers of evil, we don't have to be afraid. Yeah, that's good. Anybody else? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's not necessarily that it 
you know, I don't think we should walk around being afraid of spirits floating over us and affecting us. But even the way that Jesus approached it was not to say, well, that's not real. Mm-hmm. Get over it. Mm-hmm. He said, I am more powerful. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's the message that he has for people who are in spiritual oppression. Yeah. Um, and I think when we lived overseas, like, when people were wanting to connect to the spiritual realm but not wanting to connect to God, there was like a lot more spiritual oppression and activity mm. that happened. Like you could, you could just tell. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. But mm. You could feel that there were forces at work because people were opening themselves to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a bridge for God too. But yeah. Yeah, like it, I, I think... You could feel the battle of that. Yeah, yeah. Like you actually feel battle because it's really happening. Yep. And here we just kind of push it aside. That's really good. Uh, we're in this series called Preach What We Practice and we are talking about our core practices in our shared way of life. At the beginning of every year we try to have some conversations that are about who we are and what we're about and so practices is kind of the angle at that. So we've talked about our practice for devotion for formation, for community, um, this week mission, and next week generosity. And our conversation in this series is rooted in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. So today, as I said, we're talking about this practice of mission. And again, I've got to go back to my challenges, because really this conversation is about the intersection of spiritual warfare and the mission of God. Which I think, in our context, is so problematic. I just, I, I've got to caveat my way to this text. Uh, maybe for Paul, it wasn't problematic at all. Um, I, I think for a marginalized community like the early church, at the, at the margin of empire and Rome, to talk about them being a little battalion of the kingdom was really hope-giving. It was encouraging. But if you think about this metaphor on our side of things, with the conquests, you know, with the way that these texts have been appropriated for great violence against people and for a, for militancy, uh, in but not just not just in violence and in war, but in demonizing other people who are outside of the church, uh, it just makes me all kind of nervous. To, to grab a hold of this metaphor and to say, yeah, spiritual warfare, because there's so much abuse of this text. And I say abuse because I don't think that's what Paul was doing with this text. I think there, there's a different way to read this text about spiritual warfare than the ways it's been read badly, the ways that it's been badly interpreted that led to militancy and, and violence and conquest and demonizing the other. Uh, and so I'm going to I'm going to give that a go um, this morning. What, what's a, what's a different way of seeing that? Is Paul really barking up the same tree that leads to violence and militancy? I don't think so. Uh, I'm going to be in and about the letter of Ephesians. So if you want to open a paperback or your your digital copy, I'll jump around and I'll try to uh, keep you in tune here. In the language of Ephesians, if we're talking about mission. God's mission in Paul's words, verse 10 of the first chapter, is to bring unity to all things in heaven, the powers, and on earth under Christ. So to sum up everything, to bring together everything in Jesus, that is the mission of God. 
the, the restoration, the reconciliation of all things that Paul would talk about in Colossians. And so at Jesus' resurrection, God seats Jesus in the heavenly realms. This is the second part in the prayer that Paul prays in chapter 1. God seats Jesus in the heavenly realms over all the powers and authorities because Jesus defeated death. And death is like the, pow- the power of all powers of the powers. The greatest tool, the greatest weapon of the powers is death. And Jesus defeats death when He's raised from the dead. Um, and that, that victory is a foretaste for the way that God will resurrect all of creation and all of humanity, thus completely doing away with the powers and their hold on death. And so to, to understand this, why, okay, Jesus has victory, but yeah, here we still are in the dumpster fire. The way that Paul grapples with that paradox and that tension is with this worldview of two ages. So there's the present age, which is dark and evil. It is controlled by these powers, by the devil. And there is the age to come, which is characterized by light, by unity, by reconciliation, by restoration. And, and the way Paul holds it together is to say in the resurrection of Jesus, the future, the age to come, breaks into the present. It becomes part of the experience of the present. It coexists alongside of the present. So much so that at some point the light will overtake the darkness. The age to come will pass away. Or the, the present age of darkness will pass away. The age to come will be the age. It will be the only age. But for now, we live in this overlap of these two ages. And so when Paul gets to the end of his letter in chapter 6, he zooms back out to this cosmic level to show that we're still in this present dark age, even though rays of light have begun to break in to the present through the work of Jesus. And so he says in six, chapter, chapter 6, verse 12, Our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the powers of this dark world. That is this present age kind of language. Darkness, the present age, the present evil age, the evil day. All of that's in the same matrix of the, this present age. Okay? Um, and right in the middle of this conflict and this overlap of the ages is the church in this cosmic conflict against light and dark. One way of describing how the church participates in the mission of God is in this cosmic battle, in this overlap between the age of darkness and the age of light. The church is right in the middle of that. Now, the, the question, the question is, what is the nature of that conflict? Is the church fighting against culture? Is the church fighting against the godless Gentiles and their wicked paganism? Uh, or in our day, is the church fighting against secularism or liberalism or conservatism or whatever ideology that is other than us? I don't think so. Let me show you a few clues in the letter leading up to this section that kind of give a different kind of imagination for, for the nature of this conflict and what it looks like. What it really means for the church to be in spiritual warfare. So, uh, for example, in chapter 2, verse 1. Let me get there. There we go. 
Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, who's now at work in those who are disobedient. Alright, so there's this connection. The ruler of the air is the devil, the powers of evil. And there's a connection between this ruler of the air and those who are disobedient. Uh, there's a connection between the rule of the air, Satan, and the way that these Gentiles who have come to Jesus used to live their life. There's something about spiritual warfare here that connects to their way of life. Okay? Zoom ahead to chapter 4. And we, we get warfare language here in verse 27. Do not give the devil a foothold. Or, or in another way of saying, don't give the devil a base of operations in the world, in your midst. Now, what is he talking about? You look all around that in the verses that go before and the verses that come after. And he's talking about not sinning in your anger. He's talking about not stealing, not speaking unwholesomely or tearing each other down with your words or, or having fits of anger or, or being malicious, right? So this... this Warfare, giving the devil a foothold, has something to do with their shared way of life. With the character of their interactions with each other. That's a very this-worldly kind of thing. Are you noticing that? Yeah? Okay, one more. Chapter 5. Verses 8 and following. For you were once darkness. That's... This present age language. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. But rather expose them. Again, so we've got light and darkness. And this language connects very concretely to the way they're living their life. To their shared way of life. So, what's Paul saying with that? I think he's saying that their conflict against the powers isn't initially or primarily out there in the world. It's in here. Are y'all smelling what I'm stepping in? That it's not some boogeyman out in the world or in the culture or secularism or whatever. Spiritual warfare is right up in here. Don't give the devil a foothold up in here. It has to do with the way that we interact with each other. When we interact with each other in ways that are selfish or malicious or hurtful, we are um, we're losing to the devil. <laughs> we, are, we are not standing our ground in resisting in spiritual warfare. It has to do with what's going on in here for Paul. Not, not first out there, but in here. Uh, this week, I get so many good articles for... Uh, for my sermon fodder from Sarah Walker's Facebook feed. And she posted this week an article about how the CEO of a very large church planning organization was fired from his job. Uh, his name is Steve. And part of the reason Steve got the job was because he was a really innovative, creative, missional pastor in Sheffield, England for a long time. They started this church there called the Crowded House. 
And the focus of that church was really to live life in deep community and connection and to really be the church 24-7. It was a high expectation, high discipleship kind of commitment and connection. Uh, and because, I mean, it wasn't a mega church. It was a little church with about 100 people. But because of their shared way of life together, uh, people would come and kind of see what was going on. He did some writing. And there's this whole movement, even in the United States now, um, and even in this very city, I have some colleagues who are practitioners of gospel communities. In the same way we talk about missional communities. Well, the lingo is gospel communities. It comes from this guy, Steve. Well, so it was, it was found out. He's fired because basically he's this massive bully. Uh, and there's all kinds of spiritual abuse and manipulation that's coming out within the staff of this church planning organization and within the community of Crowded House. This really well-known, amazing community. But these stories start to come out about the the wake of collateral damage of people who, um, who were told to get out or who left because nobody could oppose Steve. One of the former co-workers of Steve said, uh, Steve didn't do peers. In other words, uh, Steve had to be in charge. Steve didn't have any co-workers or colleagues or people on his own level. Uh, he, he had to be the boss. Um, and so much so that if somebody opposed him or even had questions about, now why are we doing it this way? or you know, uh, They would get gaslit. Uh, they would become the problem. And Steve would say, you have become a law unto yourself. He would say that about things like people deciding to go on trips without getting his approval. You know, stuff like that. I mean, this is spiritual abuse. Uh, and I don't say this to malign this church planning organization or to malign the crowded house. I think they're probably doing wonderful work. But I, but I say it just as, just as an example to show what even we are susceptible to as a community and, and that is, I think if Paul saw the crowded house, he, he was writing this letter to crowded house, he would say, you've given the devil a foothold here. The devil has a foothold in your midst. Because that's the kind of thing that Paul talks about. When he's talking about spiritual warfare, he's talking about the character and the quality of the church's life together. Not some mystical, uh, charismatic, though, even though, I mean, I love charismatic kind of expressions. Not some mystical expression where we're, we're fighting the boogeyman somehow mysteriously, but very concrete expressions of the church's life together. Are we living in love? Are we living in selfishness? That's spiritual warfare. All of this makes sense of how Paul calls the church to participate, the way that he calls the church to participate in this cosmic conflict. Uh, He tells them that they need to put on the armor of God. Do you remember anywhere else? Maybe especially those of you who were a part of our formation conversation two weeks ago in chapter 4. Do you remember anywhere else where Paul tells the church to put something on? Put something off? Put something on? Anybody? Put on? Huh? Okay, put on Christ in Colossians. In Ephesians 4, he says, put on your new self. Yeah? Put off the old self. Put on the new self. I contend, and I'm not the only one that thinks this, that that's the same thing as putting on the armor of God. To put on the armor of God is to put on the new 
self. That is the warfare that we do. Uh, It's the same thing. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the boots of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, all of these relate to the character of the church's life together. Uh, The church's participation in the mission of God then is what my professor um, in school, David Fitch, what he calls embodied witness. In other words, the church bears witness to the kingdom of God, goes on the mission to the extent that in our life together, we embody the life of Jesus. We live out the reconciling, loving, forgiving, kind way of Jesus in the midst of a divided, selfish, grudge-holding, harsh world. And if you're thinking the church is doing a really crappy job of that, you're exactly right. But consider this. We're at war. We're at war. Yeah? There are cosmic powers at work to undermine the church's witness in the world. No wonder it's a dumpster fire in the church. Because the power of evil... The powers of evil have vested interest in denigrating the witness to the life of the kingdom and the life of Jesus. And they are gaining some footholds, unfortunately, in our day and age. They've been gaining footholds for a long time. But the role of the church in the mission is to to stand, is to resist this way of life that's selfish and self-centered and evil and unkind. And to resist by living in righteousness and kindness and love. Toward each other. But it's not just for the church. We don't just have this witness in our community for ourselves, like a to circle the wagons kind of thing. Um, there are rescue missions to perform. There are people the church helps to bring out of darkness and into light. And there's language for that in these metaphors. The, uh, the feet of readiness with the gospel of peace. Uh, that's unmistakably imagery for going into the darkness and sharing good news and inviting anybody who will hear good news of the light out of the darkness and into the light. Or the sword of the Spirit. That's probably not talking about the Scriptures. That's probably talking about the Word of the Gospel. So we share the good news of the light in the Kingdom of God in hopes that people we're living our lives with will hear that and and walk out of darkness with us into the light of the kingdom of God. Both of them relate to sharing and inviting in and participating with more than just our community, but rather the the community around us. None of this is to say there aren't powers at work in narratives and systems of white supremacy or in the, the evil and greedy transactional capitalist structures in our world. Uh, There's certainly powers of evil at work in the structures and systems of our society. What I want to submit is that Paul's concern in this text, in this letter, was the way that those powers of evil intersected with the life of the church itself. More than any boogeyman out there that they were trying to come up against. He was more concerned that they do the battle in the midst of loving each other. That was the way they resisted. That was the way they stood Against the evil one. I want to tell you guys a really good story. I'm running out of time. Oh, what the heck. Um, 
I had breakfast with one of my friends from college. Way, we go way back. He was a preaching major back in the day. His name's Nathan. Um, and he is in a suburb of Toronto, Ontario. It was a little church. He's been there for 16 years. And he shared some stories about how they are learning to share life with their neighbors and how they're seeing the kingdom of God break in through their relationships. His relationships with his neighbors, not knowing any of them, started actually, I think the Lord might have helped a little bit, but he was leaving work one day and discovered that um, his truck had rolled down the hill in front of their church building and smashed into the fence of the condominiums that were right next to them. And so that was his entree to relationships with his neighbors, was going with the shoes of readiness to say, I am so sorry. Uh, I have totally demolished your fence, and I promise I'll fix it. Also, my name is Nathan. You know, uh, I'm relatively new to the neighborhood. Uh, sometimes we need a little nudge you know, to meet our neighbors. But he talked about how they start to get to know this community and they start to serve lunches um, because the principal of the local school said our kids really need lunches. They start to become aware of all of the struggle and the wrestling that's happening in this neighborhood that most of them drive into from various different parts of the city. And how over time they become like a staple in that neighborhood because of their presence there. So much so that when a couple of uh, of neighbors that live in that condo have a family member pass away, they come to the church building and say, could, could you officiate or host a funeral for this family member of ours? We can't, uh, we can't pay for it. Uh, we need help. Can you help us? And the church says, yes, we would love to do that. We will, we'll host this funeral. And th- these neighbors said, well, we, we don't have a lot of money to give, but we're chefs. We would love to cook a meal for the church. So after this funeral, they, they cook a meal for the church and for the neighborhood. And everybody comes and kind of shares a meal together. And it's around Canadian Thanksgiving. And they're having this amazing time together. And a bunch of the neighbors come to my friend and to the leaders of this church and say, This is so great. Could we do this every month? Could we have this meal more, more regularly? They're like, Well, I mean, I... I guess, especially if our chef neighbors are going to cook every time, that would be amazing. And the chef neighbors volunteered and said, we'd be happy to. That would be our great delight to do that. So they have this regular kind of connection going on. Uh, one, one family that came to that monthly meal regularly was a single mama and her kids. She was the first to show up and the last to leave. And a few months into this shared meal, she came up to my friend and said, listen, you know that I'm an atheist and don't tell anybody I'm asking you this, but I've got this friend who's really in trouble right now. And I just want to ask the church to pray. Nathan's like, I, I thought you said you didn't believe in any of this. I don't. Don't tell anybody. But please pray for my friend who's in trouble. And so they started coming alongside in prayer for the needs of this, this mom who was obviously finding some connection in life in the life of this church. One of the people that attended that funeral was the neighborhood drug dealer named Gary. And my, my friend Nathan was very concerned because he came in totally drunk, carrying a semi-automatic weapon on his side, and sat down in the front row 
kind of, you know, spread out. And Nathan knows there's some undercover officers there for the funeral. And he says, are we okay? And they're like, yeah, it's gonna, it's okay. Just let them be and there shouldn't be a problem. Well, uh, months later, Nathan gets a call from Gary. Gary says, I'm coming to the church for a meeting. Nathan's like, what do you say when the neighborhood drug dealer says, I'm coming to a church for, I'm coming to the church building for a meeting? You know, I guess you'd take it, especially if he's still packing heat the way he was for that funeral. So he takes the meeting. Gary comes up to the church building. And Gary tells Nathan, I've got to get out. I don't want to be in this life anymore. I need help to get out of doing what I'm doing. And so that began the process of months and months of them walking together, talking about the way of Jesus, until one day Gary um, calls up to the church and says, Nathan, I'm ready. I want to be baptized. I want to follow Jesus. And um, I want to get baptized in the church building. How many seats does the church building have? And he's like, why? He's like, how many seats does the church building have? Like 200? You know, I mean, I, I don't know. We'll get some folding chairs because I'm bringing the whole neighborhood. And he wasn't kidding. He brought the whole neighborhood. And he told Nathan, he was like, the reason I'm doing this is because I want everybody to see what I'm buying into. I've spent my life destroying this neighborhood. And now I'm going to spend the rest of my life rebuilding it. Wow. And sure enough, I mean, everybody comes out for this masterful event. But hearing these stories and, and hearing them in light of this text that I'm dwelling in, I couldn't help but to think, you know, what a beautiful picture of, of this little church engaged in the mission of God, in, in the battle, uh, being present with their neighbors, learning and having a humble posture, and the way that light was breaking into darkness. I think it's a, it's a beautiful example of, of what a church might look like if it lived into this text of standing firm in the Lord and in His mighty power. Paul's armor metaphor actually comes from Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible where God's Messiah puts on this armor to bring salvation. Uh, one commentator actually made the observation that Jesus, the Messiah, gives His armor to the church in this text. Or to take it further... God gives the church God's self as a resource for the battle. So God lets the church clothe itself in God as they engage in this battle. Which is to say, uh, we don't make ourselves strong. We're made strong by God. We don't do this in our own resources. We make ourselves available to God's resources. Which is why I think the call to prayer at the end of this section where Paul says, as many times as he says anything about battling, pray, pray. Did I mention pray? Also pray. I think that's why that's so important. Because it brings us to this place of dependence. And this language of prayer is very specifically about petition and asking God for help about specific things. Which I think it was why it was such a serendipity that we spent time praying you know, this morning in our worship time. I don't think it was planned you know, in, in, with knowledge of the message this morning. Uh, but all that to say is that prayer reminds us that it's God's mission, it's not ours. And more than that, that, that if it's true that God has broken the power of death and that it's, it's just the beginning of the end when it comes to the light breaking in, 
for us to have that same strength ourselves in our life together is really good news. Um, and so I'm, I'm taking hold of that. I invite all of you to take hold of that um, and to stand, to stand together with the armor of God, with the strength of God in our shared life together um, and to stand against the powers of evil in that way as a witness to the kingdom of God in our world. Let me pray. Uh, God, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for uh, even the way they make me feel uncomfortable with my own baggage, this language of warfare and battle. Uh, God, would you help us to, uh, to be faithful, uh, to put on our new self, to put on the armor that you give us so that we can be people of character and love and generosity toward each other in our shared life together as a witness to this world of an alternative way. An alternative way where, where relationships are reconciled, where, where kindness and gentleness and care abound, um, and where, where polarization and demonizing and us versus them is, just doesn't exist, God. Uh, many days, we're so far from that. And we just ask you to help us, God. Would you give us your strength to be your people, to be a witness of your coming kingdom that has shown up already in the person of Jesus. And so we pray that. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.